Welcome to the faculty podcast of RTS Washington, part of a 50 plus year endeavor to train pastors and Christian leaders in confessionally and biblically faithful ways for the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president here and I teach Old Testament at RTS Washington. I'm also joined by Dr. Tommy Keene, academic dean and professor of New Testament here. Hey, Tommy. Hey, Scott. Great to have you. Hey, Gray Sutanto, the professor of systematic theology and our man in Jakarta. Hey, Gray. Hey, Scott. Great to be here and cannot wait to be in the States. Can't wait to have you here. I'm also joined by Dr. Paul Jean, instructor in New Testament and senior pastor at New City Church. Hey, Paul. Hi, Scott. It's good to be with you all. Great to have you. Hey, Paul, I want you to open us up because as we are returning to this idea of the Apostles' Creed, we're going to be working through the individual elements of it. We're going to begin actually with this kind of basic overreaching, overarching element, which is the element of belief. Okay, the first line of the Apostles' Creed is, I believe in God the Father Almighty. We don't see this believe again until we get to the Holy Spirit, um, and yet it's really echoing throughout the whole of the creed, this idea of what we believe. This is, after all, a statement of our belief. And so I want to start off with that. Can you give us a little bit of background pastorally and as a New Testament scholar as to how we ought to think about belief? What is this that it's calling us to do, to believe? Well, John Frame uh, has been helpful in thinking through this. And he says uh, three things about belief that are helpful. This is not academic in any means. He says, first, there has to be the content of belief. That is, you can't claim to believe something unless you have uh, knowledge of it, or what he calls the normative perspective. But then he says there has to be the existential component of consent, where you not only know that um, smoking is bad for you as a, as a truth, but there's a part of you that embraces it and says, yes, I believe that this is true. And then finally, uh, he says, from a situational perspective, uh, you act on that knowledge. And so he says, faith without any of these elements is not faith in the biblical sense. And, you know, I, I found that to be helpful. And the reason why is because I don't, a lot of times people will believe something so long as it you know, accords with their feelings or their experiences. So much, but that's not quite what the Bible means when we say believe. It does uh, mean that we accept something that's true and therefore we embrace it and we apply it whether or not it appeals to us. And so that's, that would be a kind of opening reflection I have on belief. Yeah, you know, in the Old Testament, there's this idea of acknowledgement and you see it show up throughout the Old and the New actually for that matter. But often in the, it's in the it's sort of an action that the Lord is doing, like the you know, Psalm 1, the Lord knows, is often how it's translated, the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Or in Ezekiel, he has this phrase over and over again, as he talks about the, fa- the fact that the Lord is going to bring this judgment on the people. And then after he brings the judgment, it says, and then you will know, and it's that same word again, to know that I am the Lord. And, and most translators recognize that that idea of knowing is not just a passive knowing, right? It's acknowledging. It's, it, it's, it's recognizing and affirming that he is the Lord. And it's because of revelation that he's acknowledging or we're acknowledging uh, his Lordship. And in the same way, with, when the Lord acknowledges us, 
it's a blessing to us. It's not just saying he knows us, but he doesn't know the way of the wicked, you know, per Psalm 1. But rather, he's acknowledging the righteous. He's acknowledging the faithful. And if he doesn't acknowledge you, then your way will perish. And so I think that idea is really important in the way that we know uh, and, and articulate this belief. What are we doing? We're recognizing who God is for who he is. And then that has all these implications. That means we'll trust in him to fulfill his promises. That means we'll rely on him and we'll go to him in prayer. That means that, that everything we do is reliant and contingent on him. And, and all of that is a part of this positive acknowledgement that goes beyond just sort of intellectually knowing something. But it, it involves you personally and communally in the, in the event, right? It, yeah. The Apostles' Creed could be structured differently. It could have just been a series of, of facts, a series of statements, but that I believe brings me into a, a community. It brings me into that relationship with God. It, it involves me as a person in the, in the process. I had a, a congregant yeah. once who told me that their favorite part of the service, this is this was encouraging, discouraging, because their favorite part of the service <laughs> wasn't the sermon, but their favorite part of the service was the Apostles' Creed. And, and I asked why, and he said, well, because it's at that moment that I am united with a community from the beginning of the faith, and it, it really makes me feel a part of this historical event. And that's the power of those simple words is it commits you to being in this trajectory of belief, but also history and story. Mm. It is great, Tommy. I, uh, and that, that's great how that person who confesses that does feel bounded, kind of forged uh, with fellow believers. And, and that's what faith does. I think that's so you know, it's a profession. It's a statement of faith. It's what it's stating what we believe, and that's what kind of binds us together. And that, and I think that that's great. I love. Um, I've always been very influenced by John Murray, in his in some of the thoughts that he has talked about in terms of faith, and how, uh, you know, he Murray will talk about faith as the 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 virtue that is. I think he may have coined the term, and I've, I'm for years, by the way, I've been trying to find this. So if you guys know where it is, where, where Murray has said that it is extrospective, it, it makes you look outside of yourself. And faith does that. Uh, faith is really the only virtue that really does that. And that's the reason why we are justified by faith only alone, because faith alone makes us look outside of ourselves for our salvation and for our hope. And, and, and even the way the creed you know, by saying, I believe, it's not saying I believe in myself, you know, sort of the, the gospel of American Idol that we hear in our day. It's, it's it, faith in God. It's looking outside of ourselves to God as Father, to, to Jesus Christ as his Son, to the Holy Spirit. And, and that's something I've always so truly gained and, 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 and loved about by the fact that we are saved by faith as opposed to by work. Coming from what you're saying, Peter, uh, I mean, talking about faith as looking outside of ourselves, right? This is exactly what uh, the classical tradition has said about Christian epistemology as faith-seeking understanding, right? That faith means that the source of knowledge here in terms of theological knowledge is not ourselves, but rather it comes from God's revelation. So Augustine talks about the distinction between a knowledge that comes from testimony, that is, uh, that we need to apprehend and assent to and receive, versus a knowledge that comes by way of rational demonstration, for example, right? That we can conjure up for ourselves. And he's very clear that theological knowledge is 
a, a knowledge that comes by way of receiving God's own word about himself, God's own testimony about himself. And so what we're seeing in the apostolic creed is that everything that we're saying about the Trinity is something that God himself wills us to believe. And even though we might not understand every facet of it, we still need to confess it because we're Christians who owe this Lord our salvation. I guess that's what I really so admire about our, our reformed Calvinistic tradition about faith and how it is, you know, Bray, as you were just saying, it is a gift. We can, we believe because God gifted us that faith. And, you know, I remember I used to do that. It was when I, when I was, when I used to be a real pastor, uh, I remember I had a family that visited and um, they were uh, staunch Arminians. I mean, uh, you know, very, very hostile against Calvinism and, and uh, they came because they had friends that were there at the church. And, and I remember uh, I, I would say things like, you know, we are so sinful that we can't even believe on our own. We need God to give us that faith. That's how sinful we are. And I remember they came up to me afterwards and said, Pastor, you're right. You're absolutely right. The Bible says that. That's how sinful I am. Thank you for reminding me. And, and without them even realizing, you know, they, they are essentially holding to a, a reformed idea, but it's reformed because it's biblical, you know, uh, it's solid because that's what the Bible teaches and, and, and it's great. It's wonderful. Well, I think because of, because of our cultural situation in many ways, and just, I think kind of a general apologetic approach of many Christians is that when they talk about what belief means, they think, what are the things that I can prove rationally, or what are the re the, the kind of rational reasons or evidentiary reasons for the faith and something that, you know, I think you all are highlighting in Augustine, great thanks for pointing us back to Augustine because it's so key to Augustinian epistemology. But the idea that at the end of the day, the reason I believe these things is because the king said them, right? The heavenly father said these things. And that's why I believe them ontologically. Now, that may not be a great apologetic argument, and that might even be tautological as an apologetic argument, but it doesn't change its truth. You know, you ask a child why he jumps into his father's or his mother's arms. He doesn't say, well, looking back on past, I've, there's been times when I was in, when I was in need of, hung, you know, I was hungry or I needed something else. And I hear some pictures of those events. And, and this is, you know, that's not how you think. What is it? Why is he jumping into his parents' arms? Because they're his parents and he loves his parents, right? And at the end of the day, sort of eschatologically, the reason why we believe is because God has declared these things about himself, right? That's, that's the foundation. That's the framework of our faith. And it's something that needs to be remembered. I often tell the students, be careful that you don't do everything in worship from an apologetic stance. You know, you need to do it also from the stance of I am in the court of the king, and that is where my worship comes out of. It's not because I read a really good book that gave a good rational argument for these things. And that actually is, can, can be quite radical. It was radical for me as a Christian coming out of college where I was. So, you know, all of my thinking about God was sort of wrapped up in this proving the faith frame that I lost the part of being in the king's court and rejoicing in his character. I think it. You know, you said it might not be a good apologetic argument. I think it's a great apologetic argument. I mean, technically, it's it's a true thing for true reasons mm -hmm. on on good authority, right? So it, I mean, it passes muster, but it's not as persuasive, perhaps. But it's a it's a good you know logical argument. But to the persuasive point, your analogy there was great. I and it, for me in talking to people, especially skeptics about the faith, 
it's actually those personal connections that, you know, the father, you know, how you trust a father, how you trust a, a friend and, and, and those kinds of personal connections, which motivate people to belief. You can reduce it to a logical syllogism, sure, but it's often those communal, personal, I don't know how to put it, emotionally weighty arguments that are more persuasive. Oh, this is what I already do. I already feel this way. I already think this way when it comes to parents, when it comes to children, when it comes to relationships in, in, in the world. And, oh, God is like that. And, yeah. and my relationship with God is like that. Yeah. And I, I guess I meant it opens up the argument of, or the, the critique that it's tautological. And yet at the same time, I think apologetically to add to, to your point, I think that with another part, another way in which it's valuable is that it gives you as a believer, a stance of rest. You're at rest because you know, your faith doesn't depend on you winning the argument because you're in the court of the King. Right. You know, and so you, it gives you a kind of rest in the conversation. That's that actually, I think has quite, quite an apologetic strength to it, right? When you're talking with someone and you're talking from a position of comfort and peace that passes all understanding. So with that said, let's, let's begin with one of the, uh, with one of the main tenets, the, the, the voice behind the revelation that we've been talking about. The Apostles' Creed begins with God and particularly God as Father Almighty. Okay, so let's let's have some discussion. What, let's unpack. We, we can go word by word. We can we can take it as a whole. But I want to open the floor on discussion of why. What's the value? What's the meaning of beginning with I believe in God, the Father Almighty. So, yeah, I think that it's important to start with God, the Father Almighty, because I think as we mentioned in the last podcast, right. The creed wants us to remember that the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ was a freely willed redemption that was that was not needed by God. God didn't lack anything. God wasn't lonely, and so he needed us or anything like that. God didn't need to prove himself. God was not in lack when he did what he did for us in Jesus Christ, right? So the reminder there of God, the Father Almighty, is to situate God's redemption within his ontology. That is that God is the Almighty One. This is talking about the divine essence, right? That God, the Father, Son, and Spirit ultimately are God. They share the same divine substance. He is one in essence, three in persons. And the predicate there that he is almighty isn't just in a, in a human sense, right? That, that he's strong, like human beings are strong, but rather he is almighty in a distinctly and uniquely divine sense that his almightiness, his power, his might is of himself rather than something that is derived from someone else, right? So, for example, our power is oftentimes derived from other things, right? We eat, and so we become uh, powerful. Uh, leaders rule, and their power is predicated upon the number of followers they have or the, the number of wars that they have won, perhaps, or their, their strategic prowess or whatever. So all of human beings, all of our power are radically contingent. They come and go. We always lose, lo risk losing them, and we uh, didn't come into the world with power, but we derive power from other things. But God's almighty character means that he didn't need anything else. That creation was not, again, a necessary emanation from God, but creation did not add anything to God, nor did it uh, uh, give God uh, something that he lacked from before the foundation of the world, but rather he is of himself. 
there's a great word for this in the classical reform literature. I think rooted in the medieval scholastics, this is the doctrine of God's fontility, that he is the font of all being, right? As the Westminster Confession of Faith talks about, uh, chapter two specifically, that he is blessedness in and of himself, that as Father, Son, and Spirit, and as the triune God, therefore, he was always love, he was always almighty, and he was never in lack of anything. I think it's striking that, I mean, it's a, to speak like a systematician, it's a strong collation of predicates that we've got God as almighty then, and then immediately thereafter, Father. Yeah, and I think that that's denoting again that Father is first in terms of the taxes there, the uh, uh, relations of origin, that the Father has the divine essence in the mode of being unbegotten, that the Son uh, is begotten of the Father, there's eternal generation there, and also the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now there's an order within the subsistent relations within the Godhead, but at the same time, they all share the same divine essence. They just share that same divine essence in a different way. Uh, the Father again, unbegotten, the Son begotten, the Spirit aspirating from the Father and the Son. I've got to reflect, I mean, as, a, as, as an Old Testament guy, these are terms that show up as titles for God. Obviously, God being Elohim. Interesting that in a couple of lines here, it, it will be contrasted, right, with Jesus, who is Adonai, right, who is Lord, which seems to be a Pauline formulation that the creed is doing here in associating with the Father as the divine name Elohim and the Son as the divine name Adonai. You know, Almighty is also a common term in the Old Testament, at least a common translation of, of, of another word, usually El Shaddai. But it's interesting that the term Father is used. Now, Father is not as common in the Old Testament in terms of biblical language for God. However, it is implicitly used because God will refer to his covenant partners as his sons, right? So father and son, okay? I mean, but, but there's not, you know, in the Old Testament, you don't find a lot of reference to God as father, apart from those analogies talking about the covenantal relationship, for instance, when you know, the Lord calls Israel out of Egypt and says, tell Pharaoh, that Israel is my firstborn son, and he shall come out to the desert to worship me. Or in passages like you know, Ezekiel 16, where you have this analogy of the Lord walking down the road and finding Israel in the ditch as a, as a kind of abandoned, exposed child, you know, um, uh, unwanted child who's left to die and takes up Israel. And this is daughter language this time around, and raises her within his own home as a princess, right? And this idea that God is father to his people in that way, you see that terminology, but it's not, it's not kind of the main language, the main terms it's used like it is later when you get into the New Testament and you see father being the way we identify God in heaven, Jesus himself and the Lord's prayer and elsewhere, our father who art in heaven. And, and, and even in that case, it's kind of a royal father language, right? It's our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Like we instantly go to his kingliness and his will. Um, and uh, and, and it's, it's, just, it's just kind of fascinating to me how that term has such prominence. And you see, because it has that utility within Trinitarian theology of articulating the first person of the Trinity and um, is really valuable in that way. And yet it also, you kind of see the, the sort of covenantal roots that are behind it. I think what's, what's interesting to me about that 
kind of taking you and Gray together there is you've got this, the Lord, Al- God Almighty, and all of the aseity of God, the transcendence of God built into that. And then you've got this term father, which is inherently relational. You can't think of, you know, fatherhood implies by its very definition, son or some sort of relational connection there. And to Gray's point, we're going to work through the Apostles' Creed in a Trinitarian formula. He's father of the son, Jesus Christ, and we're going to work through that. But even built into the essence of God is this Trinitarian nature. Uh, I'm forgetting the Latin term. Maybe Gray can can help me out there. But the the persons of God as God. Right. And I think you brought up an important point there, Tommy, that the father is eternally father precisely because he's the father of the son. He's not father because he became father when he saved us and and became in covenant with us. Right. But rather before he made a covenant with anyone in creation, he was already eternally father as the father of the son. This is actually one of the points that Athanasius made with regard to uh, his arguments against Arianism, right? That the father was always eternally father. And hence the son is also eternally the son. The father wouldn't be the father without the son and the son wouldn't be the son without the father. There is an eternal generation, therefore, between the father and the son. And I think a lot of people, I think today anyway, are worried about our emphasis on the aseity of God, that God is independent because they say, well, that means that God is not a relational God with us, that God's relationship with us, therefore, doesn't really impact him. But actually, we need to emphasize that it's precisely because he is utterly independent, that he was already eternally father, uh, precisely as father of the son, which, which means that all of his relations with us, his covenants with us, his, his outgoing works in the economy of redemption is, is totally an act of freedom. It's an entirely an act of God's free benevolence. There's nothing we could say or do that could uh, uh, diminish God's commitment to us precisely because God's commitment to us would never depended upon us in the first place because God was already completely full of life in and of himself. Well, brothers, let me um, add just my two cents on the original question, value of uh, beginning with, I believe in God, the father and so forth. It reminds me of, um, I think the apostles, right? It's, it's a helpful way to determine whether you are a Christian in the sense of believing basic things about uh, what Christianity is all about. And I say that because in my experience with a lot of um, skeptics and unbelievers, they find many aspects of Christianity uh, very attractive, you know, actually. Uh, But when it comes down to it, they don't actually believe the central character of uh, Christianity, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So they might uh, love uh, justice, especially as it's talked about in the Bible, but they don't want to believe in the one that enables us to believe in any understanding of justice. So it's helpful to uh, open the Apostles' Creed by saying, yes, I believe not just in everything Christianity represents in terms of ethics, right? But rather, I believe in the one who is at the heart of our faith. And so I think beginning in this way is very fitting and applicable to uh, our culture today. Uh, you know, it's almost like Jesus would perform all these miracles in the Gospels and people would love him in the sense that they wanted him to be the king and the miracle worker, the provider of free food. But they didn't actually want to believe that he was the son of God. You know, they, they wanted to keep that separate. The, Apo- uh, the Apostles' Creed doesn't allow us to do that. It says, you know, first you have to believe this. And if you believe this, that is that God is God, then regardless of what he says about sexuality, 
uh, life and so forth, uh, because you believe that God is who we claim to be, then everything else sort of falls in. So in that sense, it's helpful that the Apostles' begin, Apostles Creed begins in this way. I think there's something, again, now kind of switching back to the, what this says about our faith, as we reflect on all of the rest of the counsel of God, okay, which the Apostles' Creed is giving us an expression. You know, as we reflect on this, you have to keep the biblical notion of divinity in the background. It's got to decision you make when someone says, I, I, I just can't believe that an axe head would float or that a man would rise from the dead or that these mighty works of God could be done in actual history without breaking the world or something. You want to say, let me take you back again to what we believe about God. All right. You know, this idea that God is almighty, you know, which gets at his transcendence. And then father, which in a way, I mean, he is talking about Trinitarian fatherhood, but it also kind of speaks to his relationality, right? It kind of speaks to his, his eminence with us. And that God has both of these qualities. He's not the deistic almighty God who sits out and is disconnected and unperverted by creation. And he's also not this entirely sort of pantheistic God who's coexistent with us in eminence, right? But rather, he is—he has both of these, you know, again, we've talked about John Frame already, but go back to something that he in, in emphasizes a lot in his teaching. You know, he is both biblically transcendent and biblically eminent. And that explains much of what we see in the scriptures and in our world and the things that we're saying about God, right? And that kind of changes everything. When someone says, I can't, I can't believe that the, the kind of prophecies that we find in the book of Isaiah that are so precise could actually be written by an eighth century prophet. I go, wait a minute, let's, let's step back and talk again about this God who reveals himself in scripture, because that kind of changes everything. Yeah, I think that's totally true. And, and really a great way to show that the, the God of the heavens and earth is one who graciously and willingly will uh, interact with us, his people, the, I guess the fatherhood of God, as we, as I think about it, has been particularly devotionally very helpful for me. And, and as you guys were talking about it, yeah, I, I guess uh, it, it's definitely true that we read God the Father in relation to uh, the second part of the creed in terms of Jesus Christ, his only son. I guess for me, the, the concept of the fatherhood of God uh, has been particularly meaningful. As you know, I lost my own dad. Uh, not too long ago, and that's been, you know, difficult at times, and to, to be able to embrace God as Father uh, because of my union with Christ as the Son has been uh, really uh, quite uh, uh, healing in, in many ways, and, and that's something that I've, I've come to really embrace is, I, I guess, you know, God as Father, and thus, you know, my identity as Son and in many ways, it's sort of the higher or one of the highest identities I cling to, you know, before I am pastor, professor, or even husband or, or, or dad, you know, that I am a son. And, and that's been very uh, therapeutic. My, 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 one of my kids on, on Father's Day would come up to me and, and he would say, Dad, you know, you're, you're the second greatest father in the world. <laughs> And, you know, and you know what he means by that. And as a dad, as a Christian dad, you think that, yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly what I want my kids to be able to say that, you know, it only takes God to be a greater father. 
so to speak. And, and that, that's just been uh, hugely helpful. I have a t-shirt that says number one dad, and you're saying that that's a heretical t-shirt? Well, re relatively speaking, you know, I believe in absolute truths and in, in universal uh, abstract entities, but at this point, relatively speaking, you are the number one dad, Tom. In fact, relatively speaking, we're all number one dads. I think we should have a number two dad t-shirt. <laughs> I, I think that'd be great. That could be the next WWJD bracelet, man. For the next thing is trendy. Yeah, because because the people that wore WWJD bracelets are now probably dads. It'll be a nice nostalgic callback. Right. Know your right. demographic. Know your demographic. Absolutely. It is interesting the flow there. I guess Scott, you were talking about the, you know, he who is transcendent is eminent, and and that's immediately addressed almost in the petition of Father, and it's sort of interlaced with both God. Uh, and then uh, uh, Almighty, which are sort of transcendent identities or characteristics, and then, and then even the second colon in that line that describes him as Maker of heaven and earth kind of takes us back to the transcendent. It's great the flow of thought. It, it you know to sometimes we think God who is Creator is the one who is near to us, but the flow here is the one who is imminent to us uh, is transcendent. Uh, you know, we can pray to God with confidence because he is transcendent. His, our prayers are meaningful. Our prayers can make a difference. And, and we pray to an entity that just doesn't hear us, but he has the power. He has the heart for us as father, but he also has the power to answer the prayer with confidence because he is creator and he is the almighty one. By the way, I have to love how you chuckled when you mentioned almighty and the dubious Hebrew, or, or not the dubious Hebrew, the dubious English rendering of the <laughs> El Shaddai. I, thought. Well, I, have a, I have a question. You can't just say it. Well, if somebody were to quote Abba Father, by the way, without a little chuckle too, and, and Abba meaning daddy or something, then we, we, we could have a really fun conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Dr. Keith. Well, actually, <laughs> bring us back. I was actually, I was trying to get you to have that really fun conversation. <laughs> Okay, it's kind of a mainstay in we're now I'm now kind of thinking about the uh, the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven. And one of the things that you kind of hear in sermons and in, in the popular mindset is that it was not a very Jesus is being radical there. It's not a very common idea to address God as Father from an Old Testament perspective. And I, and it's actually an interesting question that gets a lot of debate in this New Testament scholarly community. I was wondering if you Old Testament guys could 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 talk a little bit about that you touched on that look can i can i just so I've, I've been thinking about this a good bit not recently but for years i feel like this has been sort of something i come back to maybe ever since i had to write a curriculum on the apostles creed back when i was doing my phd and this is a curriculum for eighth graders so i had to sit down and talk through these things you know with with eighth graders and i'm thinking about this trinitarian language of father and son and I know how it's used in the Old Testament and how it develops through the Old into the New Testament. And it seems to me, so bear with me for a minute, this may be what you're asking, but this is kind of the rest of the thing that I think about and I, and I have to kind of, I'm sort of still processing myself. It seems as if the process is covenantal relationship between a king and its people. And that finds expression or is used as an analogy for the relationship between God and his people in the Old Testament. 
God is the father of which his covenant partners are the sons. And then we come to the New Testament and we have the revelation of Jesus Christ who says, pray to us, our father who art in heaven. And that this would not have been entirely radical in the sense of like, how dare we call God father? Because we find Old Testament passages where God's referred to as father. This is not so outlandish. And yet what happens that is in the revelation of Jesus, as we see how Jesus is son, that actually explodes out the previous category. And we realize the only way we could have been son in the Old Testament arrangement is because Jesus is son, capital S son. And because we are in the son, we can now go pray Abba Father and not say dear father of Jesus, even though that's factually true, okay? But because we're united with him in faith, we actually realize now what we're saying when we say our father who art in heaven. And it's not actually, it's, or I should say, it's the same, but it's exploded out. It's a much bigger understanding of what it means for God to be our father because of the revelation of who the son is. Right. I mean, I th- yeah. is that kind of the logic of it or, or did I totally me- mess that up? No, no, no. That's exactly what I was kind of thinking. And, and it's interesting. I, I find it interesting from a like redemptive historical reading perspective, hermeneutics. You know, we've got this concept that is relational and covenantal in the Old Testament. And then what the New Testament does when we see the sun as the sun, we are better able to to see the father as ontologically father and not just right. father. And it's, and it's a, and, and there we get into Gray's territory, which is above our pay grade. But that, that idea of that, the, the, the theological ontology of, of what we're to, the, the ontological Trinity in its, in its, you know, as God is in himself revealed partially, partially and in shadows and figures and metaphors in, in the old, te- old Testament. And is, isn't that how the Old Testament is for us, types and patterns in a paideia, as it were? You know, it's, it's training us in patterns and cycles of thought that will then help us understand this much more transcendent reality. But it's giving us, it, it's giving us these patterns so that when Jesus arrives on the scene and shows how it really truly all is pointing to him, not just redemptive historically, but even the concepts are pointing to him. The concepts are about him, right? And as we see hit the sun be revealed, this is where I think Hebrews is just so wonderful in that it's kind of meditating on this idea. As the sun is revealed, we see that actually all the things we understood as type and pattern and shadow in the past is now substantivized in the second person of the Trinity incarnate. Yeah, there is a, uh, Scott, I agree with you that the concept of the fatherhood of God is not as a dominant Old Testament thing. Uh, there is an interesting uh, connection between sonship and image, uh, mm. right at Genesis, uh, where, you know, be, humanity being made in the image of God does seem to be t- t- tied in to, with dominion, but dominion as son, as uh, that is not, not you know, dewy-eyed, baby talk, Abba Father, son, but son as in heir, uh, that type of idea. So Genesis 5, I think verse 3 uh, that talks about uh, not necessarily God, but Adam fathering a son in his image. And there you have image and sonship kind of connected together. And and, uh, and I don't know to what extent we can kind of carry that through, you know, since the concept of the image of God is such a constant uh, part of our uh, doctrine of man. 
uh, and uh, tie in that type of sonship idea in, the, in that sense. Well, this prepares us now to move into the next major paragraph that is Christ the Son. Uh, and yet, before we get there, we get to meditate next week on the idea of maker in heaven and earth. And there's a lot to discuss there as we talk about this you know, truly innovative belief of the biblical faith, which is the creator-creature distinction. And so I'm looking forward to that conversation. But thank you all for joining us for this conversation. I certainly learned a lot, and I look forward to uh, developing this uh, in the weeks ahead. So until then, take care. Yeah, I think, but that's that's a good important starting point. Then we can talk about the biblical theological roots of belief. Okay, I think one of the things we can say about belief is that this is something that again you don't rationally make up. There's this doctrine that is revealed, so the necessity of revelation for knowledge. Yeah, that's probably where I would go. Yeah. Okay, I, I like how great just uh, affirmed our discipline, Scott. Yeah, that was nice. trusting. That's important. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Good. Now, anyway. now I now I have worth. Now I can mm -hmm. live on for the next day. I don't exist without OT OT guys, man. I don't. That's what so. I've been trying to tell people for years. <laughs> have you seen that filter that makes everybody smile? Like whenever you put your camera on it, that makes the person instantly have a smile, and it's pretty realistic. It's 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 scary. You have people will walk around a town just holding their camera up, and everybody they walk by suddenly has a smile. Yeah. Gray's got a, a, an alternate filter that gets rid of all of his eye rolls whenever a biblical theologian says something. <laughs> he goes, oh. I knew it. But, knew but it, get, it doesn't come across. It looks like, yeah, that's a really good point. Oh, they only understand 10% of what I'm saying right now. <laughs>